Um, we're in Galatians this morning, and so if you want to open your Bible to the book of Galatians, it is, um, we think, Paul's first letter that we have chronologically. Um, we have been going through some summary statements that Paul has been giving, defending his own ministry to Galatia. Galatia was a place that received the gospel and joy, had believed, um, had come to faith, little church started, and then some folks had come in after Paul had left and started preaching, hey, it's great to have faith in Jesus, um, but that's really JV Christianity. If you really want to go the extra mile and be right with God, you need to also observe circumcision. You need to observe some of the Jewish um, rites of, of what they ate and who they ate with. They were basically, in summary, saying, faith in Christ is okay. We need to add some things to that. And um, Paul's argument is not just that that is a, a deficient view of salvation, but that's completely wrong. And as soon as you add something to faith in Christ for salvation, you actually lose salvation in totality. And so Paul's been arguing um, for his own authority as an apostle to preach the gospel. And in summary statement, he's been um, arguing for what justification um, by faith in Christ means. And so this morning we're coming um, to Galatians 2 verses 17, um, 16 down through um, 20. And we're going to look at, again, Paul's summary of justification by faith. And so before I dive into this passage, I'll remind you um, that Paul is talking about the law. And probably most of you didn't grow up in an ethnically Jewish family where you obeyed Jewish purity rites when it came to your meals. Um, most of you probably didn't grow up thinking um, that you needed to look on the package, whether it was kosher um, or not. Um, but nevertheless, the way that God has woven the law into creation and into our hearts is that whenever we obey a law to be made right with God or to find our own identity, we're actually obeying the law that God has given, whether we know it or, right, know it or not. And so beginning of Romans, Paul said, that, Paul said that God's law was written on every human heart. And whether they had read the Bible or not, when they seek to obey some sort of standard for righteousness, no matter what it is, they're actually attempting to respond to God and find right standing as a person by what they do. And each week what I've tried to do is I've tried to change my words. And so I, I've done it on purpose. I hope it's not confusing. Um, I'm trying to take a, a Greco-Roman, ancient Near East, predominantly Jewish context conversation about Jewish law and make it applicable to you. And so if I'm going to try this week to help you understand, there are things, people, organizations that make demands on your life that demands you do things in order to secure an identity, your core identity of who you are. I don't know where for you those demands come. It may be that you have a full knowledge of the word of God and you think back to the Old Testament and you think back to um, the Ten Commandments, you think back maybe just to the way that you grew up and the way your church do things and you just think, I have to do things to be right with God. Or maybe you just have a general fuzzy feeling about what it means to be a good person. And so for you, you have whoever's voice, maybe your own voice saying, I have to do these things or I'm not a good person. Or maybe you have the voice of a parent, even though you might not be in the house with your parents anymore. And your father or your mother's standard for you is still the standard in your head. And it makes demands that oftentimes feel crushing to you. Maybe it was a professor. 
Maybe it was a coach. Maybe it was an event that happened long ago that still affects who you are. I, I think of the movie Saving Private Ryan as we think about um, our military. Um, very intense movie. I think a very powerful movie with a horrible ending. Um, and so I'm going to ruin it for you. And so if you haven't seen it, just put your fingers in your ears. But, um, you know, this, 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 this um, platoon of soldiers risked their lives for, um, for Private Ryan to save him. Um, and in the end of the movie, Tom Hanks' figure is dying, and there's Private Ryan. Um, and he turns to him and says to him, do you remember what he says? He says this is the worst thing you could say to somebody. Um, he says to him, earn this. And then closes the scene, and then it shows the same Private Ryan later in life, looking at the grave um, of Tom Hanks's um, character, um, looking down at the grave, and you can see in his eyes wondering, have I earned it? He was saying, this man has placed a demand on my life by giving up his own life, and that demand has governed how I've lived my life and whether I think I'm a good person or a bad person, whether I think my life is worth anything. And so I wonder what it is for you, and if I could mix illustrations, if you can hear that voice of whatever it is, if you could put just mute on that voice, if you could just press mute and not hear it, if you could get some of those noise-canceling headphones and just put them over your ears and for a second not feel the crushing weight of those demands to be who you hope that you'll be, how would your life change? Because that's really what God's offering you in the gospel and a life of faith that he offers. And so that's where we're going this morning. We're going to talk about a theological doctrine called union to Christ. Um, it's something that's powerfully affected me as I've studied it, um, even later um, as a minister. It's woven throughout the scriptures. Um, one author says it's not the center of Paul's theology, but it's like salt um, in the meals, that if it's not there, you're missing something. Everything's bland. And so we're going to look at that this morning. And so those are my introductory statements before we jump into Galatians this morning together as a congregation. So again, if you're in your Bible, we're Galatians 2. I will start with verse 17. I'll read down through verse 21. This is the word of our God. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too, as Jews, were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Since this is the word of our God, let's pray this morning before we consider it. Um, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word written that we have here, um, these books of the Bible from Old Testament to New Testament, but we thank you most of all for your word incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one to whom all of these books point and the one in whom it's fulfilled. And so, Lord, we would have the simple request um, on our lips that those men did um, and the gospel of John, we would see Christ. So would you come this morning, even as we study your word, we would see your son high and lifted up, glorified and worthy of praise. Lord, be with us this morning. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. 
So we'll dive into this particular text. It breaks down into to three um, easy propositions if you're a note taker and want to follow along. Um, the first thing that I'd like you to see in verses 17 and 18 is that legalism, and I'll define that, dealing with God on a transactional basis is as much sin as breaking God's law. Legalism, attempting to deal with God on a transactional basis, is as much sin as breaking God's law. I wonder if you think that. If you're familiar with the illustration, the um, parable that Jesus gave of the prodigal son. It's actually the story, as Tim Keller says, of a prodigal father, a lavish father, and two sons. Um, the younger son decides that he doesn't care about his dad and his dad's laws and his dad's house. He wants his inheritance, and he's going to go away. And so father gives him the inheritance. And we think the older son um, isn't doing anything wrong, but the way that the parable is told, the older son actually doesn't care about God's, I mean, doesn't care about um, relationship with his father either. He just cares about performing what his father requires and so obligating his father to give him his inheritance. Both are after the father's stuff. Neither of them have a right relationship with the father. One's attempt is to try to just not do God's law at all, not his father's law at all. The other's attempt is to try to do the law and perform it really well and obligate the father to bless him. And here we have Peter talking with Paul or Paul talking with Peter and Paul making that argument. And so if you're familiar with what's gone on in the past verses, um, if you've been following along here in our study, Peter had given up a life of Judaism in order to um, come to faith in Christ. He knew he no longer needed to obey food laws. He could eat with Gentiles. And so he began to live like a Gentile. Now, if you were a Jew, you would say he's now become a transgressor. He eats with Gentiles. He breaks Old Testament food laws. Maybe he's wearing polycotton blends. You know, he's eating shellfish. You know, a lot of these Old Testament laws that were in place in the Old Testament, Peter has decided I, th those are fulfilled in Jesus. I'm not saying they don't matter. I'm saying they're fulfilled in Jesus. And the new way of doing business with God is by faith that brings a freedom to love him and serve him, not according to this robust legal system. And so what people would say was, oh, Peter, you've become a transgressor. Look at you. You're doing all of these anti-Jewish things. And so what Paul's saying is, has Jesus then become the servant of sin? If sin desires you to break God's law, has Christ now helped sin get you to do that? If you've abandoned a legal way of orienting yourself to God. And Paul says, he uses this word, meganoito. Um, it's a very strong no. Um, it's, a, it, it, it's almost, a, we would think, almost an expletive kind of no um, that he uses it. He uses it here. He uses it in a few other places in Romans when he's really upset and, um, and really just thinks your argument's pretty stupid. Um, and so he's just like, no, no, we don't do that. That's not the case. Christ is not a servant of sin. And then he goes on in verse 18 to say, you know, it would be sinful what would be sinful is for us now, if we found salvation in Christ, 
We're no longer dealing with God based on some kind of cosmic slot machine, some kind of transactional, I'm going to do this, God, and you're going to do this back. If instead, we believe that Jesus has satisfied the demands of the law and paid for our sins, and so now by faith in him and faith only, which is God's work, we have salvation in him, the true sinful thing we could do would be to try and build our own system on top of that of trying to earn God's pleasure by what we do. Obeying as converted Christians now in a legalistic way. It was one of Martin Luther's big critiques of Roman Catholicism. He read the New Testament as a Greek New Testament um, professor, and he saw that Catholicism had delved into a post-salvation works righteousness. So they'd say, sure, saved by Jesus, but look at all this other stuff you need to do to earn God's righteousness. And even to this day, Christians can fall into building a system. It's ingrained into us because grace honestly makes us really nervous. It really, you would think, oh, grace is wonderful. I love grace. I love being around grace. I love thinking about grace. You're all kind of lying to the most part. Um, It's very unnerving to trust for your eternal destiny solely in the work of a Jewish teacher who died 2,000 years ago. That's somewhat unnerving. To look to God and say, God, you alone are the one to whom I'm looking to be saved and to be right with you, and not any of my works, not my Bible reading or my prayer or my quiet times or what I know or what I don't know or my church attendance. I'm not looking to any of those things to be right. I'm looking only to you. That's hard to do. Because if I offered you really, really, if I said you can trust in Christ by faith alone for salvation, or with sincere heartfelt devotion, instead, you could read through the Bible once every year for the next 20 years and be saved. Which one would you choose? You would choose reading the Bible every year. You absolutely would. Because at the end of the day, you could say, I did it. By my standard, I completed what needed to be done. I heard the demand, and I met the demand, and so now I have secured for myself an identity that I can look at, I can touch and feel and know is true. I have accomplished it, and all of us desperately want to do that. But God knows you can't, as we'll see in our third point. It is impossible, which is why he has provided Jesus for us. But there's still that tendency And so all of us will attempt, as saved Christians, to build a structure, to build a routine. And routines aren't bad. They're bad when we begin to look at them for our right standing before God. And all of us, for the rest of our lives, will do it. And Paul is saying here, that sin. That is what it means to be a transgressor. To attempt, once you're saved to build a way and try and secure for yourself a salvation that's already been secured. And so I wonder if you have both of those categories in your Christian life. I hope that you consider God's moral law and you think things like lying, cheating, and stealing are wrong. And when you do them, you repent and you trust in the Lord Jesus for um, forgiveness in those things. But I also hope that you look at your life and you're looking for ways that you're trying by your own attempts to earn 
salvation again, because all of you will do it, and it's much more subtle than the other way. And so that's what the Apostle Paul means when he writes there in verses 17 and 18, especially verse 18. For if I rebuild what I tore down, if at one time I was trusting in this structure for my salvation, and I tore it down to believe in Jesus and trust in him alone, well now on this side of my salvation, if I rebuild another structure for salvation that I'm going to trust in for right standing, well, now I prove myself to be a transgressor. And that word transgressor is the word for Gentile to Jews. So we can read really bad person, whatever we would say for that. And so I hope you have those categories. We're going to move on to the second point. I'm not going to spend too long there. But I want you to think about that. And it is, it is so specific for each person, so individualized. So Martin Luther, seems like Martin Luther morning this morning, quoting him twice now. Um, Martin Luther would say, a legal man and a gospel man will look almost identical. So what they do outwardly may look almost identical. Love their families, um, serve in the local church, they're a good um, employee, good dad or mom, really strive to love other people. They both look the same. But at the heart, one is doing it out of a fearful demand and hope they'll finally make it. The other one is doing those actions because they know that they've been loved by God. They know their identity is secure in Christ. And so they're free to work. One is enslaved to work. I have to work to be. The other is free to work and to worship. I now can do these things um, without hindrance. And so... I, it's a, I, don't, I try to be as applicable as possible to you. Um, it's something that you're going to have to do some self-diagnosis. Um, you should be used to that. You know, in the days of WebMD, nobody goes to the doctor anymore. You feel bad, and you go on the Internet and convince yourself you have cancer and all kinds of other horrible <laughs> things. Um, you need to do some self-diagnosis um, with yourself. You're, you're going to need to look at your own life and say, look at all the things you do, and just ask yourself the question, Why? Why am I doing these things? Are they an exhausting weight because they're demanding I do them to secure my core identity? Or is my core identity secure in Christ and I'm doing them because I want to serve the Lord and other people? So I give that to you. Second part, and this is, the, this is crazy talk from the Apostle Paul, or at least it seems that way. Um, I urge you, this is one of those um, crocheted verses. You might see these you know, in your grandmother's house. She crocheted them, put on the wall. You might go through um, you know, somebody's home or office and see this verse on their computer screen, screensaver. Um, you might see this you know, on the back of somebody's license plate, Galatians 2, 19 and 20, of wherever it is. Um, I'm going to read it, and I want you to... I want you for a minute, pretend that you're hearing it for the first time, and then we're going to make some conclusions based on it. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life I now live, I live in the flesh by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I have not been crucified. I hope to never be crucified. Um, if the Lord should ever lead me down the path of martyrdom, I know that that's an option, but I hope to never be. 
There are Christians who have been crucified for um, the sake of Christ. Actually, the Apostle Paul, not writing then, but if church history is true, he will be killed um, that way, according to, to church history. And he will count it as um, an honor to die in the same way that his Lord died. But that's not what he's talking about here in this passage he is talking about a drastic change that happened to him and that happens to all Christians when they're converted, a fundamental reorganization of how they approach the demands of life, we might say the law, and how they approach God. One is death and one is life. One is slavery, one is freedom. And throughout this letter, Paul's going to play with these themes. And so I'm going to, I'm going to deal with it in a, in a kind of a shallow way, not get too deep into it. And then you're going to see it work out as we work our way back through the book of Galatians um, through the end of this year and the beginning of next year. And so what you need to get at the heart of this is that Paul is teaching what happened at his conversion was that God caused him to be united to Jesus. Do you see that there? That there is a real union link connection made between the real Apostle Paul with Jesus. It's not metaphorical. It isn't a neat thought that he likes to convince himself of. He believes and teaches that the Christian is in a real spiritual and vital union. So that as you read here, he says, the life I still live in the flesh. He's using the word flesh like this earthly world that we see. And so, you know, skin and fingernails and all these things. The life that I live now, I am actually living in union to Jesus so that who he is, is who I've now become. What he's done, I now have done. The benefits that he has, I now have. The relationship that he has with God the Father and the Holy Spirit, I now have with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. This is true and real now in this life even though I struggle to believe it and won't realize it in full until the day that I die. This doctrine is woven into the way that I preach every week. And so I'll work my way through a text and what you'll hear me say, I'm kind of letting you behind the curtain um, of my sermon prep, you'll hear me say something like, you might be struggling with this text because... We bring up the tension that might be there. Because all of us have tension. We look at our lives. We look at the Bible. It's hard. It makes us angry. It makes us sad. It makes us confused. The tension in our lives right now of what we are in Christ dimly and one day will be in full is resolved by reflecting on that union. Because that union provides for you three basic things. It provides for you your identity. So if you're a Christian and you're united to Jesus, you now have a core identity of being a son of God because Jesus was a son of God. You have a core identity of being holy and righteous because he is holy and righteous. You now have a core identity of being beloved of the Father because he's beloved of the Father. You now have a core identity of working in the world as a missionary to see the lost saved because he had a core identity of working in the world to see the lost saved. Who you are at your core 
is no longer, longer decided by the demands of your life, wherever they come from, they've been decided by Jesus because you and he are now that close, that united. So identity. Second thing that's decided are your relationships. Jesus is in right relationship with God the Father and the Holy Spirit, and so you are now too. Jesus has this wife called the church that he loves and invests in, that he's continually building up and preserving until the great wedding feast of the Lamb. And he loves his church, his betrothed, his wife. And there's this union between him and the church that makes him and her always together. And that's the same for you as a Christian. You could decide in sin and rebellion that you're going to spend years out of the church and away from a church. Nevertheless, because of your faith in Christ, you're united to this people of God. Your relationships are set and secure. All of us long for a place we belong that won't ever change and won't ever turn us out. And by salvation in Christ, we have found that in the church. Your relationship with God and with other people is now set. Your relationship also with the world is set. So Jesus said, listen, the world's not going to like you very much. And don't take big offense. The reason they're not going to like you very much is because they didn't like me. So if they didn't like me, don't expect them to like you either. Do you hear the union theology in that? He didn't say, well, I did some offensive things to make the world mad, and you're going to probably do some other things. He's saying, we're that close. So that if the world hates me, they're going to hate you too. If I'm a missionary in the world to see people saved and there are going to be people who are going to respond to my gospel and faith, then as you go out into the world as missionary, there are going to be people who are going to respond by your word and faith and come to Christ. Your relationships are set. Your community. And so the third thing that's set by our union to Christ is our story. We all live our lives thinking about our own story and wondering how our story is going to end. We're all kind of playing in our head our own little YouTube videos of our greatest hits you know, the, the times in our life where we really think we got it. You know, if you're a sports guy, you know, these were my great sports events. If you're really heady intellectual people, maybe you can visualize when you got your SAT scores and, and what they said or the approval of that teacher. If you're a family person, you know, those times you feel like everything clicks together and there are angels singing and, you know, uh, the, the dinner was awesome. You know, whatever that is, all of us tell our own story. Um, we kind of had this little five-minute clip of, of what our life has been and the things that we think are important to us. And we're always wondering, how's it going to end? And is it going to be enough? And what Christ has done through our union to him, he's now said, my story is your story. And as we see expressed even in our, um, our catechetical documents in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, Jesus' life was summarized this way. A life of humiliation and suffering that led to a life of exaltation and glory. Jesus said, you should expect the same thing when you become united to me. A life of humility and suffering in this life. Don't expect to have heaven now. But after that life of humiliation and suffering, there's coming a resurrection where there is a life of unspeakable joy and glory and exaltation where Jesus is now. And so we expect that same thing 
And even our lives in, in general are, as a friend of mine says, are kind of mini um, J-curves. And so what we really want to do is if this is where I am and that's where I want to be in, in growth, we think there's going to be a straight path between here and there. There's just going to be this mounting um, increase of skills and habits and joys and triumphs. And you said, actually what happens is you have here and you're here, and then all of a sudden you go down. And there's suffering, and there's the valleys, and there's the darkness. And through that, you learn that God is gracious and good, and he brings out a mini resurrection. And so you end up there, but instead of just climbing the mountain, you had to go down through the valleys. There was humiliation and suffering and then a resurrection. And if you look back on your Christian life, I think it probably looks like that. And so things are going pretty well right now. I'm not too... Um, too macabre or morose, but you know it's um, it's probably going to get worse. Um, but it's going to get better, and it's going to get worse, and it's going to get better, and it's going to get worse, and it's going to get better, and then it's going to be gloriously better in heaven with the Lord God when there'll be no more worse and no more bad and no more sin. And it's not that God has some kind of ant farm going on, and that's what He decided to do with this thing called His creation, just to kind of play with us. We're united to Jesus. Life of suffering life of resurrection, life of suffering, life of resurrection. It's our story. And so we can kind of forget about our YouTube videos and we can start to focus on Jesus's narrative and not be surprised when suffering comes and also not be surprised when there are moments of tastes of resurrection in your life, great joys um, and worship. So that's how union to Jesus changes us. It changes our identity, it changes our community, our relationships, and it changes our story and this isn't just fancy speak. This isn't the core of reality. This is who you are. And it actually is who you are whether you like it or not as a Christian. You could believe something completely different. doesn't matter. This is really who you are. And so God's invitation in his gospel is to invite you into that. And so what you're going to see, which is going to work out, and these are the two ways described here in this text, um, the way that the Christian's life goes out, it's similar to that little J-curve that I told you about. Um, Paul describes it as mortification and vivification. Those are fancy words. Mortification is dying or deathification. And what it means to die, there are things that you die to. And so Paul says, listen, I'm dead to the law now. I have been co-crucified with Jesus. That means Jesus died to the law's demands. He died as God's just punishment upon sin. And that death that he has is also now mine. I have that death. And I now use that death whenever the law or any other demand seeks to define my identity, my story, or my community. So, for example, if somebody comes to you and says, you are the biggest screw-up ever. I mean, look at everything that you've done. How dare you call yourself? You need to get your act together or else I don't even know what kind of person that you are. The reason that that shakes you is because it feels like death. That person has brought your core identity into question. And when your core identity is in question, or even your core identity ceases to exist, that means you cease to exist. And what we call it when people cease to exist is death. And so what demands are asking of you is really your death. That's why they drive you so much. So the person whose core identity is wrapped up in work, every time the job performance review comes around, it feels like your life is on the line. 
because your core identity is on the line. And so if we were going to have a dialogue with your job performance review, the job performance review comes in and says, eh, some good things, but also some bad things. No longer perfection reached in your vocation. In fact, this is the same that it's been for the past three years. I'm not quite sure you're ever going to get this area of your vocation down. And all of a sudden, you, your shoulders droop, and you start to feel your identity crumbling. What if I never become the kind of person I'd like to be in my vocation? What about when you are talking to your spouse and it comes and all of a sudden you had the same issue you've always issued, same fight you've always had. Um, if you're young and married, um, what happens is you think you have 3,000 fights. By the time you start to get long, you realize you're really just having two fights over and over and over again um, in different circumstances. And what happens is that as you start to hear, what if I never make it? What if we never solve that issue? What does that say about me? If you're trying to get into college and you have all of your college applications out, when those envelopes come back and you feel them, are they heavy, are they light, should they be heavy or should they be light, um, who are they from, who's addressed to, you feel like your identity's at stake. You know, if, if, if you're single and you'd really like to be married and you're thinking your marital status and you're looking for people that you could date and different potential spouses and you wonder, what does it say about me where I am right now? Is my identity secure? And, and all of those things, when they approach you and say, you're never going to make it. You're never going to be enough. You say, I know what you're asking of me. You're asking for death. I have death. Here is my death. You're seeking to kill me. I have already died to you. You no longer have any control or authority over me. The demands that God has for me, which are even higher than my vocation or my spouse or my college or a potential spouse or whatever, those demands for me have already been met by Christ. And he has died for my lack so whenever something comes and says, if you don't do, you'll be nothing. You say, I've already become nothing. I have the nothingness that the Lord Jesus Christ has earned for me on the cross. I am dead to you. Literally dead to you. You no longer, have, we, the reason we use, we use those words, um, even as they're becoming popularized, to say, there's no more relationship here. You're dead to me. Paul used the argument later, um, being, um, before you're a Christian, is like being in an abusive marriage. You're married to the law, and the only way you can get out of marriage is if one spouse dies. And so what God has done through Christ is allowed you to die so that you no longer have any obligation to that other person. What that means for you is now when you face different demands and you find yourself um, your, your identity in question, you can hear it and be real about it. So you say, yeah, I'm not perfect at everything. Yes, I messed up at that. I, I hear that. And you can even admit it, not just hear it, but admit that it's true. Some people are willing to listen, but they do kind of the splitting thing where their eyes glaze over, um, where you know like your words are going into their ears. Um, but they're really not even considering it. They're just waiting for your lips to stop moving and then moving on. Um, that's hearing. But you can even admit what these different areas of your life say about you. You're not the perfect parent. You're not the perfect spouse. 
You're not the perfect man or woman before God. You're not the perfect Christian. You can hear those things. You can admit to those things. You can even confess those things and add to the list. You can say, well, I'm actually worse than that. You don't even know. I mean, the things that I've thought, things I've done that you don't know about, I'm even, I'm even worse than those things. You can even begin to empathize with other people when you've hurt them for the consequences of your sin because your identity is not at stake. If somebody comes to you and says, hey, you really hurt me, and you maybe you've had this conversation before, you know, what you've done has really hurt me. Well, you've said that I'm a really hurtful person, and I can't believe that you're saying that I'm a really hurtful person, and all these things that I've done, there's no way that I can be a hurtful person. I can't believe you've labeled me as a hurtful person. We all do that. I've done that before, too. What have we done? Somebody's come and said, you've hurt me. You've heard that as changing your identity as a person. Not that you've done something wrong, but that you as a person are someone wrong. And so you've lashed out back at them rather than just listening to them and being able to empathize with them and say, yeah, you know what? I did something hurtful and I hurt you. And I can actually think about what it would have been like to be you in in this interaction with me. And I'm so sorry. You're actually freed from yourself to empathize. And lastly, you're freed finally to see what happened to the cross. The Lord Jesus didn't just go through a hard thing to win a trophy. He died for your sins. He died because he knew the law would demand death of you. There would come a day when the demands of life would stack up and it would finally say, you have not met the law. I need death from you. And Jesus knew that you would not be able to pay an eternal death without going to the theological term for eternal death, which is hell. And so he provided for you an eternal death. He says, here, you're going to need this. You're going to need this in your life. You're going to need this um, when you face the judgment one day. Here is the death. In case anyone ever demands death of you, here's death. I've earned this for you. Vivification. And so what it means to die to the law, what it means to die to sin, what it means to die in these things is that we're living this constant life of saying, you don't get to say who I am. And when I'm failed and my sin asks of death from me, I have death to provide. It can no longer rule or reign or take authority. The the second thing is that Jesus provides um, a life force, a vivification. Um, Too many V's in that word to to say it quite right. Um, It means enlivening. It means coming alive. And so you see, the, the life I now live, I live by faith. I don't live by some works. I'm not trying to pay something off. I don't live in fear of a law. I don't live in fear of other people. I don't live to win the approval of someone else. I don't live to be the best husband or father or co-worker or mom or whatever else. The life I live, I live by faith in the Lord Jesus who loved me and gave himself for me. Some of the most powerful words in all of scripture are the personal pronouns. Who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul was not one of Jesus' pre-crucifixion apostles. He wasn't hanging out with Peter and John and James. He was an enemy of the Lord Jesus. In space and time, he believed that the gospel message was for him. And what that message meant 
was that Jesus, the person Jesus, who literally lived and walked this earth in Nazareth, you know, across a few oceans 2,000 years ago, that guy who was also God Almighty, he loved Paul individually and gave himself for Paul individually. So you're not saved as a mass of nameless faces. You're not in the New York subway of salvation where you can't pick people out. Jesus has saved you by name. He intentionally gave himself for you. And in that moment of self-sacrifice did not say to you, earn this. He said, I've already earned this. Receive this salvation. And so in the same way we're united to his death, we're also united to his life. In the same way we are co-crucified, so are we co-resurrected. And so the life you now know as a child or daughter of God is the same life that Jesus knows. So the Father's smile on Jesus is the Father's smile on you. And the way that the Father rejoices in Christ, so he rejoices in you. And all the inheritance of Christ, of heaven, is yours. And the same way that Jesus rules and reigns over the earth, so you are being prepared and are currently in part ruling and reigning with him. It says when Jesus judges the world, it won't just be Jesus judging the world, but that we will judge the world with him. There's this unity and life freedom, fullness, and forgiveness where there are no longer demands to be someone. There is the promise you already are someone because of what Christ has accomplished for you. So Paul says, I'm constantly doing this dying and living thing. Every time I I hear the law condemn me, every time my sin comes and says you're horrible, I agree with it. And I say what you're really after demands in law is death. And I actually have some death to provide for you. Here's the death of my Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You have no claim on me. I am worse than you say, and that's already been taken care of at the cross. And then I live this life life where there aren't demands, there's freedom. And when I wonder, could I be forgiven? God says you are forgiven and will always be forgiven. Where he wonders, can I belong? You do belong. And I wonder, what will I do? You'll serve me in the world like my son served me in the world and know that our relationship is secure and that I sing over you. I often, in silence, will stop and strain my ears as if somehow I could hear the singing of God the Father over me somewhere afar off. straining for that faint sound that I'll hear in full when he calls me home to be with him. That's what the life of faith looks like. Finally free, free to serve, free to love, free to worship, free to smile, free to suffer, free to rejoice. And I'll close this way. Some of you might be asking, am I just taking general ideas about happiness and placing Christian words on it, like mortification and vivification? Am I just, in whatever ways you've grown up as a Christian or not, am I just giving you a new theological framework? 
I would argue that I'm not. Paul is talking about a radical change, about a seeing your life as a Christian in union to Jesus, that Jesus has accomplished this welding together between you and he. And that's the basis out of which you should consider and think about all of your life. That's the freedom and the forgiveness and the fullness that we have in him that's offered for you. And it is only through Christ. The gift you have is an amazing gift. C.S. Lewis was right. He said, so many of us act like children, to paraphrase a bit, playing in the gutter with cigarette butts. You've been offered a holiday at the seashore. Or as the Puritans used to say, you're living far below your status. You're a beloved son and daughter, and you're living like you're a beaten slave or an orphan. I wonder how this calls you out um, as a Christian. I wonder what invitation that you hear this morning to come to Christ to do what Romans 10 said, to confess with your lips and believe in your heart and know that you're saved and know that that's not some pie in the sky, neat thing to say, not some magic spell, but actually a testimony of what God does when he unites a Christian, a sinner to himself and brings about a salvation and a union that will never change. That's Jesus' invitation to you this morning. Come and have life to the full. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this, the truth of your word. We pray, Lord, that if there's any doubter this morning, anyone who's wondering, could this actually be true?